Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, the special rapporteur pushes back. He said he works for the government. That's the problem, Mr. Speaker. Canada is blessed to have a man so dedicated to public service, persevering through this headquarters. David Johnston says he will stay on the job, despite a House motion that calls on the former Gigi to step aside. What impact will his investigation have if a majority of MPs do not have confidence in his final report? We will speak with our political observers. Also, damning report on the state of child welfare in Nunavut, a lack of response to suspected harm, no check-ins on the well-being of children who are put into care. Coming up, we will speak with Canada's Auditor General, who says the territorial government is failing to protect vulnerable children. This is Primetime Politics. I'm Michael Serapio. David Johnston was not on Parliament Hill today, but his name was raised more than once as opposition MPs reacted to Johnston's response to an NDP motion passed by members yesterday. The motion calls on the special rapporteur to step aside, but Johnston says he will not. It prompted this debate in the House earlier today. Mr. Speaker, in response to yesterday's vote, where MPs representing a clear majority of Canadians voted for him to step aside, Rapporteur David Johnson said he isn't going anywhere. In fact, he said he doesn't work for Parliament or Canadians. He said he works for the government. That's the problem, Mr. Speaker. He works for the same Liberal government that benefited from Beijing's election interference. And he personally serves the Prime Minister who chose to do nothing while Chinese Canadians were bullied into voting for his Liberal Party. Nobody is fooled by this sham of a process. So when will the Prime Minister fire his ski buddy and call a public inquiry? Member for our Minister for Emergency Preparedness. I'm reminded once again that it's not only unfair but deeply offensive to, 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 to listen to the member opposite question Mr. Johnson's allegiance to this country. His 15-year career in public service has made it crystal clear to everyone that his loyalty is to Canada. And Mr. Speaker, as I also said, and as I quote former Prime Minister Harper, Mr. Johnson represents hard work, dedication, public service, and humility. Mr. Speaker, Canada is blessed to have a man so dedicated to public service, persevering through this effort. With more, we're now joined by Susan Smith, Principal with the Blue Sky Strategy Group. Tim Powers is Chair of Summa Strategies. And Kim Wright is Principal with Wright Strategies. Hello to the three of you. Hello. Susan, I'm going to get you to start us out here because David Johnson, as we know, is staying put. Uh, are you surprised by this? You know, given that the majority of MPs want him to step down, shouldn't he be listening to the will of Parliament? Well, he's not an officer of Parliament, Michael, and he was appointed by the government. So he's very right when he says that that is, in fact, the case. I think it's a challenging situation when Parliament has twice said they don't have confidence in him. Or, uh, but I do think it's, that's become a partisan issue. It's not about his ability. It's not about his skill. It's not about the fact that he is supposed to um, be getting to the root of any potential foreign interference in a Canadian election in our democracy, that the opposition seems to have moved away from that and they're just going straight at 
Mr. Johnson because they feel that that's a path to Mr. Trudeau. I think it's unfortunate. He's an upstanding Canadian, eminently qualified to do the work, but uh, it, it can be seen as a bit of a distraction from the outright um, objective of the exercise, which is to determine has there been foreign interference in an election. Okay, Tim, I'll get you to, to weigh in here because I, I think just for clarity, you know, to, to listen, for example, to Jagmeet Singh, he says this has nothing to do with Mr. Johnston. They they think he's an up, up upstanding person, but he, the NDP, believe that the appearance of, of bias is, is just too strong, too apparent. So if that's the case, Tim, will Johnston's uh, second report carry any real weight when it comes to foreign interference if this appearance or this apprehension of, of bias exists? Exists. Well, if that were the case, though, I mean, I, look, I, I think everybody's playing politics here. So start with the NDP's politics, Michael. If they were so serious about this and so concerned about it, why wouldn't they push to withdraw their confidence uh, in the agreement they have with the government? I mean, they're being a bit like paper tigers here, and I think that's a bit insulting. Um, you know, Mr. Johnson, I think, is digging in because he's got nothing to lose at this at this point in his life. Um, he, he believes he's doing good work. I think all the parties here, unfortunately, are not helping the bigger issue, which is the matter of whether or not and how pervasive foreign interference is because everybody's focusing on Mr. Johnson and they're not focusing on the key elements in the report. Things like uh, Aaron O'Toole revealed earlier this week when he became aware that he was subject to a lot of uh, interference, to use that word, by, by, Chinese, by, by Chinese authorities. So, you know, Mr. Johnson is a convenient political tool for everybody, including the prime minister, because it prevents him from having to talk to the substantive issues here. So I think they're happy to use Mr. Johnson as, as a shield, and that's unfortunate for all of us because we've got to get at the meat Mr. Johnson brought up in his first report. Yeah, okay, and, and Kim, I'll have you jump in because, you know, that is th this interesting point, whether or not this is just all political theater because you know, Johnston does say that his recommendations, uh, the one, this, especially the second one, will go to preventing foreign interference from happening again. Uh, and is that not what this is truly about, especially if Johnson says that there is no evidence to suggest the government failed to act on the information it had? Well, what they had and how they portrayed it is actually one of the challenges that we've been seeing, frankly. Uh, you know, we look at uh, Bill Blair, you know, couldn't access a portal, which seems a little implausible to me but even then he would have a briefing package a paper copy shocking that we still use paper copies of things uh, and that he would be able to have had access to that at, at the end of the day there's so many things in here that pass credibility in general public and when you go back to mr johnston's press conference which was well gosh if you'd seen the evidence i saw you'd believe this was all fine and dandy too sure except for you're not actually showing us what the evidence is. You're saying, trust me. Uh, and what we've had for months now, going back you know, into, into February, where the prime minister started with, these are all scurrilous allegations, there's absolutely no truth to it, to, well, there might be some truth, to, hey, we're gonna put millions of dollars into a new office of foreign interference uh, in the budget. Uh, and then we're gonna have the special rapporteur. Like, there's so many elements of this. Had they actually months and months and months ago said, you know, 
maybe we should just have a open airing of this as much as we can with redacted documents and all the rest of it uh, and, and get to the heart of this to make sure that Canadians believe that our elections are run without foreign interference from China, from Russia, and any other agents that are, are okay, trying to I, knock can, on the doors. Can I push back, though, there on Kim? Because, you know, just, just take Mr. Johnson's side a bit here. He, he does say that, you know, if it were to be anything more than what he's suggesting, it would be uh, compromising to national intelligence, national security. Yes. And so, and, so and, how and does, that, does, that, does that not... And we're also talking about a former governor general who's making these conclusions. Can we not give him the benefit okay, of the doubt on that can, level? No. And a legal no, scholar, fact, too. Hold, yeah. hold on one second, Susan. I was asked the question here. The reality is that there were lots of things that can go forward. Yes, some of it will be redacted. Are you suggesting that the Air India inquiry or the inquiry of Meharar didn't have security implications? Like, come on. That is an easy say, oh, well, it's security, it's national security, and maybe Five Eyes are going to be mad at us. This is the this has been the talking point from the beginning. But there are some things where we know that parliamentarians, at least three, potentially more, have been targeted. Uh, and so how do we know this? How do we get to the bottom of this? How do we keep our democracy safe? Those are the things that every parliamentarian is asking themselves and what we saw in that vote uh, this week is that even liberals have said, oh, wait a minute, we actually do need to get to the bottom of this. This is actually not passing the smell test in our communities. And they're going to have to go back on the barbecue circuit this summer and have to face some really harsh mm. criticisms. Who knew what, when, and how do we get to the bottom of okay. this? Okay, so Susan, you know, let's now flip to the other point then. Why not just call public inquiry? Because as you know, the prime minister is not beholden to the special rapporteur. He says he'll follow up. He's not really beholden by, by any law law on this. And in the meantime, liberals are being painted as uh, as participating and benefiting from a cover up. So I, I'm on the record at the beginning of all this, Michael, saying, you know, public inquiry might be a simpler thing to do. But it's very, very important to underline that these are issues of national security. So like the mayor or our inquiry that Kim is referring to, there were many, many parts of that that were in camera. So when you're talking about issues of national security, whether it's a special rapporteur or a public inquiry, it is not an airing of all the laundry and all things. And I want to take a step back. I mean, if this is about potential interference in our democracy, the um, whoever is doing it, whatever the foreign interference interfering are, and we you know we believe it's China, it's working right now in the sense of forget about elections. Look at this exact snapshot of moment in time because what they've got done is they've got the. They've got the politicians, the opposition politicians, talking about the special rapporteur instead of about the issues. So I think what everybody needs to do is take a deep breath, let Mr. Johnston do his job. He's a former constitutional scholar. He's a former governor general. He's had national security clearance level for years. He's an eminent Canadian. He's going to hold public hearings. There will be things that are aired in public. But guess what, everybody? You don't get to see all the national security stuff. And that's what people have to understand about this. So I think things, the noise could have been avoided if we'd had a public inquiry right from the get-go, but we're not there. But we do have an eminent Canadian who's highly qualified to do the job. We should stop squawking and let him get, to, get down to doing his job and put forward a report that's going to remind everybody that we have a strong and robust democracy. And mm -hmm. if there are some potential chinks in that armor as a re result of foreign interference, that, we, that our institutions are doing the things that they need to be doing.
Okay, listen, I, I, obviously we're going to keep following the story, but I've got three minutes left here. I need to ask each of one of you very quickly, a quick go around here, you know, Danielle Smith and the future of Alberta-Ottawa relations. She says she wants to reset that relationship following her, her, her majority win in Alberta. What should we expect? Uh, Tim, I'll begin with you. Well, there's only been one Conservative Premier uh, in the last 15 years, seven, it's actually 18 years, Michael, who served out a full term. That was Ralph Klein. Uh, and she, of course, invoked Ralph Klein the other day. The bigger challenge for Danielle Smith will be, can she hold her caucus together? And that will determine what she does in the federal-provincial relationship front. I think, as all premiers have done before from Alberta, Alberta premiers, though, she will focus on natural resources. She'll have allies and all of that. But her impact will only be as strong as her tenure as leader of the Conservative Party, the United Conservative Party of Alberta. Okay, uh, Kim? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, whether she uh, gets to stampede this year without calls for her resignation is always the uh, the betting game in Alberta politics. Uh, and I think that you know we've seen articles already the the bloodletting and those those are part of the course. Of all of our viewers will have seen those over the over the years after every campaign. Uh, but when the calls start coming from inside the house, especially such a uh, uh, hard foundation of that house in uh, UCP politics, it's going to be a challenge for her to manage both the premier's office and the party. The calls coming from inside the house. Uh, <laughs> Susan, what do you think about the expectations here? I think it will be impossible for Danielle Smith to change her spots when it comes to her views with Ottawa and her relate. She may, I don't think she's going to be able to help herself, quite frankly. She hasn't been able to help herself the whole way along. And quite frankly, if she doesn't do a good job and she dials up the rhetoric big time against Ottawa, Alberta, ironically, what she'll do is she'll help the federal liberals, because if she can't help herself and she can't manage some of the wackier ideas that she tends to put forward, uh, the rest of the country will look at her and look at her close alliance with Pierre Polyev and then take another hard look at the liberals when it comes time to the next election. Okay. Well, again, we continue to watch. Uh, Susan, Tim, Kim, thank you for this. I appreciate the time. Always Thanks. a pleasure. Thank you. The Premier of Nunavut says he is deeply disheartened, concerned about a new report from Canada's Auditor General that says the territory is failing to protect vulnerable children in its care. Now, these are issues that go to the very basics of child protection, including a lack of response to children who are in crisis and failing to monitor the well-being of children who are sent to foster care. With more, we're now joined by Canada's Auditor General, Karen Hogan. Karen, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure being here. Listen, this is not the first time that your office has raised this issue. It's been raised before, the first time going back to 2011. Was anything done between then and now to, to address any of these issues? So you, you are correct, this is our third audit. We did one in 2011 and one in 2014. And we did see uh, some improvement uh, in between 2011 and 2014, but the situation today is much worse than, than it was all the way back in 2011. Uh, in, in my view, a lot of the, the root causes are really so intertwined um, that it's time for a real different approach in, in order to find a, a sustainable solution uh, for, for child and family services. Okay, and when, when we did, just to let people in, we're talking about a meager or no response to, to suspected cases of harm, no evidence of security checks on adults who would be in contact with children in foster homes, no follow-ups on children put into care. Uh, you, you, you talk about root causes. What exactly are the root causes as you see them? Mm -hmm. 
Well, you're right. I think you, you outlined the, the findings in the report really well. We found um, failures in almost every area that, that we looked at. And, and I think we asked ourselves the obvious question that everyone would is why? Why did this happen? Uh, while there are probably many root causes, we identified a few that are really interrelated. One would be funding. Uh, when you don't uh, know how many kids are in your care, it's really hard to know whether you have sufficient resources in order to follow up with them or to provide supports to, to the, their families. Um, the second would be staffing. There is chronic staffing shortages uh, in the territory. At some time, some of the areas have almost 50% of their staff that uh, are uh, positions that are vacant. Uh, so there's a lot of reliance on short four-month four contracts. And, and then because of that, you really need training. But we saw an absence of training. Uh, sometimes uh, individuals uh, would not get training at all because training would only be offered every 10 to 19 months. Uh, and then finally, the last thing I would point to is really uh, the lack of a, a cohesive and, and comprehensive information management system. While that might sound really administrative, it is so important um, because the department was unable to actually tell us how many kids were in their care because they don't have complete files, missing information, or a sense of, of how many children they need to worry about. How is that possible? Is it the information exists in one part of the system but not making it into a centralized part of the system or is it that, that the paperwork is just not being filled out? So, I mean, if that was the case, we would have found it because we visited communities. And what we found is that some communities um, tracked it in different ways. At times, it was just paper files. At times, things were on USB keys or on someone's computer uh, who might have then left and then that, that computer's wiped clean. So there really isn't a full database. But when there is a file or a case opened uh, for a family or for children, we just saw no documentation in so many areas, so no evidence that required monthly check-ins were happening, no evidence that referrals were being acted on or when they were acted on, what the conclusions were. So there, there was just, it, it's so many things that fed into um, uh, you know, poor information and case management. Which, of course, all of this is centered around trying to create what is best for a child in care. So what is the impact, to your understanding, uh, of these shortfalls to, to children who are in care? I think I would summarize it as there's a, an entire department, the Department of Family Services, whose purpose is to ensure the well-being and care and protection of the children under its care to support families and communities, and they are failing at that. When they don't know how many children are there, um, and they don't have enough services offered in communities to support families. I mean, we, we saw things that if I, if I could talk about referrals, we mm -hmm. saw when referrals come from uh, either a police officer or a teacher or a member of the community that there's suspected harm. In 20 of the 92 cases, we saw no action activity whatsoever on that referral. And when an investigation was started, half of them were not completed. So it means that children are waiting months, uh, if not years, for the care and help that they, they need. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, your report does not come with any recommendations. And that may go to, to what you were talking about earlier, about a different way of trying to address this issue. So, mm -hmm. Can you talk about what you think needs to be done here? So we talked a lot about what would be the right approach, right? We have two previous reports with many recommendations. Those recommendations still hold true today. They need to be acted on. We saw commitments from the government twice and 
really nothing has improved. And so in my view, we needed to do something different. It wouldn't be a good use of time to sit down and come out with a detailed action plan again. It's a good use of time to sit together with the government and the departments to collaborate better with Inuit organizations in the communities to find a solution because there's an immediate solution needed to deal with the crisis that's right there in front of them, but then long-term sustainable solutions that are needed to deal with those intertwined root causes that have existed for so long. Well, we, we look to see what happens uh, after this report, but Karen, thank you again for the time today. Thank you. And that's Karen Hogan, the Auditor General of Canada. Let's take a look at the other stories making headlines today, beginning with the wildfire situation in Nova Scotia. The Canadian Armed Forces are prepared to provide planning and coordination support, ignition specialist personnel and ignition equipment, and firefighting resources to assist with fire turnover, mop-up, and hotspot dowsing. That's the Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blair outlining new military support for Nova Scotia. Extra firefighters from the U.S. and South Africa are also coming to help. Some will be deployed to Nova Scotia, the others expected in Alberta. The federal government saying more than 80 wildfires are currently out of control across the country. This is the federal government's deal and uh, we're there to support them. We're putting more money up and I, I think we're about that close from uh, getting it done. Premier Doug Ford says Ontario will pay one third of an agreement to keep the Stellantis EV battery plant. Stellantis halted construction on that $5 billion project in Windsor, Ontario. The company right now refusing to confirm reports of a tentative deal to end the standoff over government subsidies. So, number one, there should be, as I said previously, no single point of failure um, in terms of intelligence. That's why we are now uh, bringing critical intelligence to deputy ministers to analyze and give advice on. That was the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor, Jody Thomas, appearing before the House Procedures Committee today. She says intelligence regarding China's effort to target MP Michael Chong's family was shared with three deputy ministers, but ended up in a black hole. She described it as a failure of the process and not the failure of any one individual. Now, today it was also announced that the Special Rapporteur, David Johnston, will appear before the committee next Tuesday for a three-hour hearing. The high-tech industry group known as Space Canada has a big ask of Ottawa. They want the federal government to create a national space council that would not only develop strategic space policies, but also create jobs that would keep Canada competitive. With more, we're now joined by the CEO of Space Canada, Brian Gallant. Brian, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's begin with this uh, space council, if you will. It sounds like a lot of money. Why create another layer of bureaucracy here? It's really, I think, interesting because the, the reason for it is that 60 years ago when somebody was doing something in space, it was all government-led. And then decade after decade, things were changing. Now, over the last few years, the space sector, what's happening in space has morphed before our very eyes. It's an emerging industry. It's one in which that the functions that we're using space to better our lives here on Earth and here in Canada uh, is changing as well. So because of that, 
our argument is that over those 60 years, when the systems were put in place to govern space from a from, from Canada point of view, um, it's archaic. So we need to really find a way to get all the departments that have an impact on the space sector and this Canadian space ecosystem, as well as all the departments that could be benefiting from the Canadian space ecosystem to get around the same table. So we would actually argue we don't want really to create another layer or anything like that and really just get the departments with the resources that they have that are already working in space. If they don't have someone working in space, that says a lot and they should have at least some people. And then bringing them to the same table and making sure that space is a priority because it has and will have a huge impact on our societal challenges, our environmental challenges, and I think it represents a great economic opportunity. Okay, well let's build upon some of that because I'm thinking about, for example, the government already committing billions of dollars to to upgrade our early warning system. We're talking about satellites, we're talking mm -hmm. about weather satellites. That commitment's already being made and that already, you know, that type of project, those fingers go into many different departments. So mm -hmm. again, how needed is this agency if those commitments big Mm. multi-billion dollar commitments already being made. Mm -hmm. and, and I'll even add to, to your point, I, I think that it, it was great to see in the last federal budget major investments to extend the International Space Station contributions of our country, uh, also some uh, investments in the Lunar Gateway and Lunar Rover, so, so fantastic and, and applauded by us. Nevertheless, there are still lots of things that need to be done, and it's not all about funds. Of course, there's investments that would be very helpful to the industry and to the ecosystem, but it's also about regulation and modernizing our framework. So let's use a quick example. We actually don't have a framework currently in Canada for commercial space launch. It is, we think, imperative that we have the ability to launch from uh, Canada because not only is there an economic opportunity for it, but there's also the fact that with geopolitical tensions on the rise, a need for Canada and its allies to increase its capacity so we're not reliant on countries that might be a little more challenging to work with in the future. So with that, there has to be a whole modernization of the regulations and really develop a framework from scratch so that we can launch commercially uh, here into space from Canada. So with that example, it demonstrates that we're going to need Transport Canada, we're going to need the Canadian Space Agency, we're going to need all these defense, we're going to need all these different departments working on that very specific opportunity. And there are many other types of opportunities like that that are on the horizon, pun intended. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and we think getting this National Space Council together will help us be nimble, agile, and do it right. Okay, uh, you, you mentioned economic benefit. Is there a dollar number there? or a number of jobs, because I think about all the billions of dollars this country has invested in other high-tech sectors, air and space, and still, when we talk about technology in the future, we're talking about the United States, South Korea, uh, Japan, not really Canada. So, mm -hmm. so what dollar figure are you looking at here? Well, in space, what's interesting is we have such a rich history in Canada, and we should be very proud of our contributions. We have a wonderful partnership with NASA in, in the United States, and we've done some amazing things for decades, and we're about to do another amazing thing, which we've already talked about, Michael, with the Artemis program and having a, a Canadian Space Agency astronaut join that, that four-person crew. So, so we should be extremely proud as Canadians of what we've done. Now, there is right now thousands of jobs every single year in Canada that depend on the space sector. There are billions of dollars that uh, come into our country and that, that are generated because of the space sector every single year. Now, that's with a global space company that depends how you kind of slice it, but essentially it's somewhere between 300 billion to 600 billion per year right now. In the future, there are projections that say that it'll become a trillion dollar industry per year by 2040. Some even say a $2 trillion industry. So when we see 
huge economic impact already as is with an industry that is important to us. If we double down and really invest and make it a priority as this industry is emerging and creating a lot of economic opportunity, Canada can see some of that. Uh, and there's all these other functions of helping us fight climate change, uh, helping us with the digital divide, helping ensure that we're secure in our country, all these other things that would be, I think, very beneficial to Canada. Okay, well, we watch on the sidelines. You'll have to keep us up to date. Brian Galland, thank you for the time. Thanks for having me. And that is our program for this Thursday evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow, but stay with CPAC as Debejan avec l'Essentiel is up next.